0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. David Hogg about Anselm and medieval theology. So we cover topics like who is Anselm? What were his major theological contributions? So then we talk about ontological argument, perfect being theology, atonement, beauty. And of course, we just cover why should we care about medieval theology and what does that look like for the local church and beyond. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com, and you can contact us there. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where podcasts podcast is devoted to thinking, but we don't want to just think, we want to think well, And we want to do that by creating an intellectual culture, hopefully, of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And as you'll note, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I've got a host next to me who's my (laughs) oldest son. So maybe you'll hear him laugh a little bit throughout because he sees his his picture. Uh, And we also have Brandon with us. Yep. Brandon, you can introduce yourself. Sorry, uh, yeah. I, I took, derailed I,
1: I, you, you. Yeah, you messed me up totally, but that's okay. I, I'm your, <laughs> your your co-host, Brandon Askew.
0: You know, it, it's been a while since we've recorded. We record in bunches, so this is kind of like one of our first times back. So this is, we'll see how it goes. But we've got a, an awesome guest for you guys today, and that's Dr. David Hogg. Um, I think he's probably one of the few uh i guess medievalist that's an evangelical that is out there so i'm really looking forward to talking to him uh but i imagine there's probably a good swath of our listeners who don't know who you are dr hogg so maybe you give us a little bit of background on who you are and how you got interested in medieval theology particularly given that you're an evangelical
2: yeah sure thanks for having me i appreciate this opportunity to uh, to chat with you guys um I was born and, and raised in Toronto. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, I went to the University of Toronto where I studied history. And for anyone who knows <clears throat> the world of history and specifically medieval history, you'll know that the Pontifical Institute for Medieval Studies exists at Toronto, uh, which basically is a fancy way of saying it's one of uh, one of the, the really great uh, medieval history programs uh, in the world, quite frankly. But anyway, as a result of that, I studied under some really great professors who, they're the ones who can be blamed for my my initial interest in the medieval period. Uh, when I went on to Westminster Seminary to study theology, um, I, I clearly remember Sinclair Ferguson uh, lecturing on the doctrine of God. And as part of that, he passed over or, or walked us through Anselm of Canterbury. And I think that's the first time I began to, to wonder who is this guy. And uh, he intrigued me very much. So when the opportunity came for me to pursue a PhD at St. Andrews, I decided to put my undergraduate history together with my um MDiv theology and and I ended up studying Anselm of Canterbury and uh, medieval theology so that's that's how I came to it I think that's I came to it honestly but I enjoyed it <laughs> and still do
1: All right Dr Hogg. well thanks again for for giving us some time let's just start with um maybe a biographical sketch of of who Anselm is uh help us to get to know him a little bit better before we uh, get into some of his theological contributions.
2: Yeah, sure. So Anselm, I think it's actually fair to say that Anselm began life as a troubled youth. Uh, he was not somebody who had the ideal upbringing. I mean, let's, I don't, don't want to create the wrong impression. He, had a, he was born into what we today would call the upper middle classes. So it's not as though he was uh, scratching around um, with the likes of Monty Python trying to find food. But um, he, he did have a troubled youth, he had a difficult time with, uh, with his uh, parents, especially his father. His uh, father, early on, was not a believer. And after his mother died, he ended up wandering all over Europe, trying to, in a sense, find himself uh, not unlike uh, some do today. Uh, while he did that, he found his calling uh, in studying. Uh, he landed at uh, the monastery in Bec, which is in Normandy, the, uh, the northwest co- coast of France. And there he he became a monk. Uh, he joined a man named Lanfranc, and uh, he was taught by him, and he enjoyed study and so forth and that kind of quiet life. He then rose up through the ranks, uh, became the prior, which is second in command of, an abbot, of a uh, monastery, and then he became the abbot, which is the first um, in command, that is to say, the leader of, of a monastery, and then eventually became the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, so he's a fascinating figure. This was, all took place in the 11th, beginning of the 12th centuries um he he had a wide wide network of friends we have over 400 letters of his that are left to us and it's very clear he was active Mm -hmm. um in maintaining as i say a wide network of friends he was also a spiritual guide to a lot of people who wrote to him asking for help um and guidance and of course the reason we're talking is he was a theologian um, Mm -hmm. and he wrote a great deal so that's that's sort of the uh, the two cent tour of, of Anselm, um, fairly significant character in the history of theology, but also even in the history of the uh, of the church.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. So I, I want to dig into, I think, his you know theological contributions especially. So why don't we start there? I mean, I think probably most of our listeners who know Anselm think Anselm ontological argument. So maybe that's just where we start. I know there's some other stuff that we can talk to, perfect being theology, atonement, And then I know you wrote a book on him on Anselm's, I guess, theology of beauty. And I think I want to talk about all those. But I I would imagine most people, when they think Anselm, think the ontological argument. So maybe you talk to us a little about what is the ontological argument? Has it been abused over the years by people? What, What does that actually look like?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh I I usually refer to it as the so-called ontological <laughs> argument and and I, I I do that really to draw attention to the fact that it's it's probably not what people think because over the years as I've taught I've discovered that if students come with a knowledge of uh the ontological argument it's because they took a philosophy class and there is much good in taking philosophy classes. But one of the things that has not served them well is in, in undergraduate philosophy classes, they tend to teach uh, and to treat Anselm's argument for the existence of God as though it's a philosophical idea or argument or concept. Um, when, in the modern sense of that term, philosophical, it isn't. Um, when you read the Proslogion, which is the name of the work um, in which the that argument exists, which I'd I'll be the first to line up and say proslogion is perhaps the worst title of any book ever given. <laughs> um, it, does, it does not invite. I'm hoping that the original, <laughs> you know, cover had lots of artwork on it that drew people. But you know, let's face it, Um But you know, it starts out in prayer. Um, Anselm begins by inviting. In fact, it's, it I think is worth thinking about. He begins the proslogion by actually inviting the reader to come with him into prayer and he so he he actually calls a prayer meeting as at the beginning of a book on the existence of god which is i think you'll agree not normal for philosophical arguments
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah and it's you know so that's the context and i think it's very easy if we don't remember that context then we're not going to be able to follow the rest of the line of his thinking very well because as so many uh, philosophers have done, at least in my opinion, they've neglected that context. Mm. Um, and so, and what that means? Why does that matter? Well, it matters because um, Anselm is he's he's unashamedly drawing on divine revelation. I mean, if nothing else, Anselm is a student or was a student of the Bible. He knew his Bible. He was a monk, um, and a lot of people think monks just sit around and do very little, or as I mentioned earlier, they've watched Monty Python and think they finally got it, singing requiems and banging themselves <laughs> on the head. Um, that's, you know, that's only part of what they did, uh, not all of it. <clears throat> but, um, you know, for example, every lunch hour, Anselm would have sat down at a table, and he with his monk, fellow monks would have listened to the Psalms being read, and they would read through all, they would hear them audibly, they would hear all 150 Psalms over the course of just one week. Which means you yeah, think about it: 150 psalms times 52 times a year times however many years. Just that book alone, it's really wow. going to sink in. So yeah. Anselm, all that to say, Anselm is a is a man of Scripture. Um, now, Anselm is is not necessarily uh, the man who is um, you know just making things up as he goes along. He's he's not. That's not his. That's not his interest. He wants to draw on Scripture. So all that to say, he's he's not operating in a kind of supposed neutral space, Mm -hmm. which is what I think people think the ontological argument is about, that Anselm is going to prove that God exists just by a thought experiment. Um, You know, God's being alone is sufficient. Um, And in fact, what he's actually doing is inviting people to enter his space, which is why he starts the whole thing with a a prayer meeting. And so what he does is he argues, here's the the punchline, he argues that God initially, that God is that in which nothing greater could be conceived. Which again, I'll be first in line to suggest that that may not be the best way to avoid um, it. That it tends not to draw people in, but but there it is, and it is. It's a great statement uh, when you think about it after you get your mind around it. But to say that God is that uh, that in which nothing greater can be conceived, He's um, actually. It's important to note that He He is not. Just trying to draw us in to think well let's let's think about how great God is in terms of some imaginary being, He actually goes on to then unpack god's uh, attributes, specifically his his imminent attributes, so his attributes like his mercy and his love and his grace, and he's saying that God is greater than anything you've ever imagined, with respect to these things so so really, what he's actually doing is he's not arguing that God exists. He's actually arguing, in a way, what God is like, and he's doing it from Scripture. So I'll pause there, because I've just sort of rattled on for a bit. Does that make, am I making sense? Yeah, you
0: know, as I think about it, and I think of how it's, to some degree, been abstracted from its context of what, I guess, what the the context of faith-seeking understanding, it does seem that some of the critiques that then come against Anselm are not against Anselm and his mode of thinking about this argument for the existence of God, but one that is completely abstracted, that is divorced from this posture of, I'm assuming the reality of God and assuming the reality of divine revelation and scripture and all these things. So I think, at least from my vantage point, a lot of the people who get frustrated with the ontological argument as being overly speculative and those types of things um, aren't actually engaging with Anselm's true argument in context, like you mentioned, where he's opening this in prayer. He's doing all these things that are uh, not normal. And I think that's probably a similar argument against Thomas Aquinas that I see people who just aren't acquainted with him think that he's just doing philosophy only and not really he's talking about Aristotle, quoting him a bunch. But in reality, he's actually quoting scripture more than anything else. Um,
2: so I, yeah. am I thinking about that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's... it's. Uh... <clears throat> it's uh it's it's interesting to me that uh so so charles taylor's book his is otherwise known as a doorstop um the the secular age uh is uh you know i I know brandon is the expert in this so we'll we'll have to pass this over to him in just a moment but um you know one of the things that that i think is really neat about the way taylor describes the development of thinking and culture and so forth is that. Um, before 1500, his argument is that that sacred and secular operate in these as these two different worlds, um, and then somewhere along the line um, we have this notion of the of the neutral space to which we can all come, and we have this sort of neutral ground, and that eventually gives way to other things in the you know later on. But I think one of the the things that I think Taylor's right that a lot of our thinking is actually centered around the fact that there's this neutral ground, this neutral space at which we can all come and have a conversation. And the the difficulty with that when in approaching Anselm is he didn't believe that. Anselm didn't believe for a second that there was a neutral space that we could all, an a-religious neutral space that, um, that we could all occupy. And that's why he begins with an invitation. I mean, for them, anytime you talk about God, the, the assumption is that, That you have to enter into God's space. You're not entering into a neutral space to talk about God. And so, you know, the prayer and it's just he's he's basically saying you have to come over here to talk about God. I can't go over to you where you assume God doesn't exist because you've already you've already decided the case. So,
1: Dr. Hogg, it might be helpful if you would um, if you could maybe walk us through how. Anselm understood the relationship between faith and reason, like is is faith at the service of reason or is reason at the service of faith, and and how did his view compare with maybe some other names that we'd be familiar with um, in the medieval era, and then how does it compare to what you see as maybe the prevailing understanding today?
2: It's a good question. Um, the <sighs> The way that Anselm and his uh, medieval confreres would have thought about faith and reason, for the most part, is that faith is the context in which reason operates. Um, That's, of course, very different from the way most people today think about the relationship between the two. Usually, you'll find that people will make the argument that reason is the context, the bigger context, in which faith, or faiths, plural, or religious belief operates. In other words, today the prevailing view is that our rationality uh, usually described as scientific inquiry and understanding and so forth these are the things that are really that really matter and then faith is supposed to find its place in that well in the medieval period in europe this is the exact opposite um perhaps the most famous uh well several famous examples um and some of course is certainly one as i already noted the uh you know he begins his his argument for how God is by inviting us all into his prayer meeting. That's um, clearly a, a context of faith that is then going to uh, address questions of reason. Um, but this it's also true with uh, Bernard of Clairvaux and uh, a guy named Peter Abelard. It's rather a famous, at least within medieval history, rather famous exchange. Peter Abelard, for anyone who doesn't know, was uh, a very much younger contemporary of uh of Anselm of canterbury <clears throat> the two of them as far as i know probably never met uh, although we can't say that for sure but at any rate uh peter abelard was a precocious uh, though very intelligent man who wrote a whole lot of things he wrote and made three attempts at writing a systematic theology all of which failed because he got a little bogged down in a little thing called heresy but that put that aside for just a moment um he, he actually argued, he tried to make the case that reason is actually the, the, the thing that matters most. And a man named Bernard of Clairvaux, who in his day in the, uh, in the 12th century was probably the preeminent theologian, uh, he is a little bit, comes a little bit later than Anselm, and, and um, tremendous leader in the church, and even in European society. He took Peter Abelard to task, and, and Abelard was actually brought before a, a council to answer charges. Now, partly because he did have some strange views of the Trinity, uh, but also because there was this question of how can you honestly say that human reason is the biggest context, is the most important context into which faith must fit? Because that, says, that puts a great deal of weight uh, that cannot be sustained on the genius, brilliance, and quite frankly, omniscience of humanity and uh so abelard was taken to task on that and, and you, as you can imagine it didn't go well for him uh, but that would be the the difference between the two medieval period faith is the context in which reason operates and that's simply because faith looks to god and assumes that god is the one who knows in ways that we don't and so his his uh revelation our faith in it um is is important yeah i think that's an Does easy that way to remember question? it
1: um just you know remembering which one is the context and and you know that kind of sets the stage for how the other operates so it's a helpful way to remember it i think
0: mm-hmm. yeah i when i think of abelard i can't help but think if he were in contemporary culture man he would be one of those lightning rod dudes on the internet uh with his own like <laughs> youtube channel yes. and this massive <laughs> following yeah he'd probably even
2: have a friend in a podcast you know, interviewing people i think that would probably be what he did <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's awesome. So Anselm, I think, for at least for me, one of the other big things that comes to mind, and I think it probably goes along somewhat with the ontological argument, is just perfect being theology in general. I think when people think of perfect being theology, they probably think Anselm is one of the chief architects or practitioners. So maybe we talk a little bit about, does it as far as what you understand perfect being theology to be, would Anselm be kind of the chief architect of that? And what does that look like for him versus maybe contemporary context? I don't know how familiar you are with contemporary stuff. So we don't have to go that route if you don't want to. So we can just talk Anselm if that's, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, of course, you know, we recognize that uh, all theology written after Anselm was really just rumor. Um, It was the height of, you know, everything with Anselm, but um, but yeah, no, I think um Anselm, you know, the the whole notion of of um perfect being theology, it makes sense to ground it in Anselm in a way that you might not ground it in in Aquinas, um uh at least first, at any rate. Um or or even you know, as we've mentioned, of Clairvaux or the Victorines or anyone like that. But um and and it's the, the I suppose the thing that that I wrestle with is is Anselm's, of course, Anselm's concern was doxological, um, and so to ground, to use him as a grounding for perfect being theology is not necessarily inconsistent with what he said, but it doesn't necessarily um, reflect his chief aim, which was to glory and praise in God. Um, and sometimes I think that can get lost mm-hmm. in the contemporary conversation, and and I think that's where Anselm would want to say, "Well, hold on a minute here. Remember, I've invited you to a prayer meeting, and that prayer meeting is actually turned in by the time you get to the end of the prologue. Logion, it's turned into a worship service." <laughs> um, and so you know, it's 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 just a very different approach to what Anselm is doing. So I don't know if that if that addresses at least to begin with some of what you're what you're getting at.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess it just depends on what the person thinks of as perfect being theology. If it's simply just this minimal claim that we assume that God is the greatest possible or conceivable being, and therefore we can make judgments about other aspects of his divinity that aren't expressly laid down in scripture based upon this principle. Mm -hmm. To me, it seems like that's something that Anselm would be doing. Mm -hmm. You know, God is eternity looks like X, Y, and Z because he's the greatest possible being. Mm -hmm. But if we take that and and abstract that apart from this and start using this as a paradigm apart from Scripture, Mm -hmm. then that is not what he's doing.
2: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's interesting because Anselm, in one sense, as you read him, you recognize that he's somebody who's not afraid of speculation. So, you know, taking, taking something and running with it a little bit um but he's also somebody who is still remarkably grounded in divine revelation and seems a little bit uh, uncomfortable with leaving it um mm-hmm. so the speculative aspect of anselm is certainly present but it's definitely guarded when he wrote his uh one of his first theological works the monologion yet another wonderfully titled work <laughs> um he, he he sent it off to his to his mentor landfrank and said you know I'm proud of this this is my first published work um before it hits the presses uh which haven't been invented yet i wonder if you could read it and give me reflections on it and when he does that he also says and by the way i have written absolutely nothing novel in this i've actually read a lot of augustine and really i'm just you know talking about augustine um or reflecting on what augustine has already said in other words he's trying to he's trying to say i'm not you know I'm not writing speculative theology. I'm not just dreaming things up or trying to find logical conclusions that ex- or extensions and so forth that aren't revealed in scripture or are grounded in in the received uh, orthodox tradition. Um, but if you read the monologue and you realize, well, and some you you actually have begun to do just that. like you are beginning to push the boundaries a bit so when I look at Anselm, I actually see somebody who wants to push the envelope a little bit he wants to push the boundaries out uh a little bit in in different ways, but he's careful about how he does it so he's a he's a cautious theologian
0: yeah
1: that makes sense let's um let's let's transition to his work on the atonement so if, if i if I remember correctly and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong but leading up to Anselm the prevailing view on the atonement was was the ransom theory. And then he comes along and he does not like that at all. And he comes up uh, with his own theory, which um, most of us probably know as the satisfaction theory of the atonement. So maybe walk us through why he was not a fan of the ransom theory and then what exactly it is that he's trying to accomplish um, in in his theory that he sets forth.
2: Yeah. So the ransom theory, um, uh, the idea that, that, God had to pay a ransom to the devil because the devil owned humanity, because Adam and Eve basically sold themselves out to the devil in the garden. Um, Anselm actually never tells us why he doesn't like it. He's very... Again, this is part of his caution. In the Cur Deus Homo, there is a, a kind of a reference for that that his, uh, his interlocutor, that is to say his student, uh, gives. He asks him a question, you know, what about this whole idea of the ransom, I'm paraphrasing obviously. Anselm actually kind of sidesteps it and says, hmm, you know, that doesn't really satisfy. Let's move on to something else. So he's careful not to belittle the received tradition. So we can't actually say, here's why he doesn't like it. But if I could speculate, so I'll go beyond Anselm here. Um, I think given all that we read in Anselm, he, he is not happy with the ransom theory to the devil because it puts the devil in the primary position, the pole mm-hmm. position. And Anselm's view of God is such that that's just not right. Um, and so he's, he has struggled with it leading up to writing the Cur Deus Homo. Um, so, so that's kind of what lies behind his, his lack of uh, enthusiasm to accept the prevailing view. So what does he do? He says, essentially, well, so what's going on there? And he says, well, the, our problem in humanity is that we didn't give God what was owed to him. Um, so here's this satisfaction idea, uh, and, you know, the question is, well, what did we owe to God? Well, we owed him obedience. We owed him righteousness or justice. You, there are different translations if you read um, his work, but we basically we didn't owe him obedience. And what that means is that we've dishonored God. We have, uh, as it were, dealt an injustice to God, and that needs to be addressed. Um, so, but the problem is this, Anselm and his and his student keep asking each, you know, as they go back and forth in conversation. Uh, and you know, as a student says, Well, how big a debt do we owe God given the fact that we have not given him what is owed? How do we satisfy this this now this debt? And Anselm's response, which has been criticized quite widely, is um, well, the debt, the size of the debt is measured in proportion to the basically the majesty or the nature of the the person who's been offended. And his student says, oh dear, uh <laughs> if we've offended God and God is infinite, we have a big, big problem. And um and Ensign's yes says says yes we do. And so the question becomes, well what how do we address this? How on earth could a human pay an infinite debt? Um it's just impossible. And so that's where Anselm has to say, well it looks to me, or it sounds to me like, the only way out of this predicament, um, the only way for atonement or at-one-ment with, uh, between humanity and deity, is if there was some being who was fully human to represent us, and fully divine, not only to represent God, but to actually be somebody with an infinite uh, nature. And uh, and so that's how he arrives at the fact that you know, the satisfaction theory of the atonement is uh, one in which the necessity of a god man is uh, is is shown i think in a fairly simple way
1: as a follow up to that maybe like fast forwarding to the to the reformation and you know the penal substitutionary atonement how directly um I, I i think it probably goes without saying that penal substitutionary atonement is indebted to the satisfaction theory just as far as some of the assumptions that are laid in mm-hmm. place. But how much did, did the theologians who who came up, well, I don't want to say came up with, or who uh, formalized or um, however you want to put it, uh, penal substitutionary atonement, did they draw on Anselm a lot directly, or was this kind of just sort of um, in the water that they swam in, so they just kind of you know took it and, and changed something here, changed something there, and then it kind of became penal substitutionary atonement?
2: Yeah, it, there's, uh, there's, there's. I think I would say it's probably best to categorize or to, to describe this as uh, Anselm. When Anselm published his Cur deus Homo in the early 12th century, it really marked a turn, a beginning of a turn uh, to a new way of thinking about the atonement. And so by the time you get to the Reformation, it really is in the air. Uh, and people are not going back and quoting Anselm. Um, It's kind of interesting. When Anselm published his Courtais Homo, it was very well received. It was copied. It was sent all over the place. People are reading this thing. They're interested in it. They're reacting to it. Uh, Theologians immediately following Anselm uh, interacted with it. Uh, Aquinas interacts with uh, Anselm a little bit um and so for some time there's that there's that engagement and then anselm's reputation just sort of gets becomes very quiet people go on reading like as like today people just go on reading other authors newer people what's going on all the rest of it um but by that time anselm's influence had uh been quite profound in in shaping the way people approach the uh, the atonement so by the time you, you get to the reformation Again, nobody's quoting—at least I shouldn't say nobody. Very few are, are really quoting or interacting directly or self-consciously with Anselm, but the ways they're talking about the atonement are very much indebted to what mm-hmm. he wrote. Okay.
0: So I, I did want to talk a little bit about you, you've got a book on Anselm and the beauty of theology, which I just looked on Amazon. It costs like
1: five thousand so. dollars. <laughs> yeah,
0: if you want a what is it? if you want paperback, it's seven hundred and ten dollars and ninety nine cents. That's pretty. <laughs> Pretty reasonable, I'd imagine. Kindle (laughs) is $14. (laughs) We won't be doing any giveaways on this No giveaways? Are you kidding me? (laughs) But uh, I do want to talk about it because I think you've got some interesting stuff in here. So the beatific vision is in here as well as some other interesting chapters. So maybe talk to us about what do you mean by the beauty of theology? Mm -hmm. And then I think I would be interested in his understanding of the beatific vision.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, beauty of theology meaning really what I'm doing there, and um, you know what I've continued to try and, and do since uh, since that is to draw people's attention to the fact that, that beauty is a category in theology. Um, now that kind of has come and gone over the years. It's 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 starting to come back a little bit now, um, more than it did say twenty or thirty years ago. But um, but the very the fact that that beauty is a is an important category in theology. So just as an example, um, in the Deus Homo, as we just were finished talking about his uh, work on the uh, on the atonement, you know, basically that that work relies on what he keeps referring to as fittingness or appropriateness, or to use our uh, term, beauty. Um So, just to give you an example, when he begins writing uh in on the atonement, he says people will really appreciate the beauty of how God works when they realize or learn or are reminded that just as death um, was introduced into humanity through a man 's disobedience that would be adam 's disobedience, so life is given through a man 's obedience, obviously the life of Jesus. But he goes on and says. And just as sin entered humanity through a woman, speaking of Eve as the uh, the first one to uh, to fall to the temptation of the devil, he says, so it's interesting that salvation also comes through a woman, speaking of Jesus being born of Mary, and the fittingness that 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 should uh, take place in that way. And then and then he also says that the fall took place um, by Adam and Eve taking what hung on a tree, the fruit uh, presumably, and. And that redemption, therefore, is actually, it's interesting that it's received from, uh, for for people, it's made uh, a reality for people through receiving also what hung on a tree, specifically Christ. Mm -hmm. So those are just like three, those are three little examples um, out of one work that show that for Anselm, God's beauty is not just, oh, wow, like there's a sunset, or fantastic, the universe is really incredible, or something like that. Beauty for him is is that God responds to sin in a way that is utterly appropriate, fitting, right, indeed beautiful. It's um, not—so just to give you an example— to perhaps make this more concrete, many parents, over the years, when when their children do what they shouldn't do, they they break a rule that's in the house. You know, there are no no cookies you know, before dinner or something like this. The child then is caught with their hand in the cookie jar, the crumbs all over their mouths, and all the rest of it. For the most part, most of us as parents um, tend to tend to um, bring about discipline or correction in a pretty bland, broad, and and non-specific way. You know, maybe they get sent to their room, and this is how we deal with a lot of things, or you know, whatever. Whereas God never deals with with sin or with our weakness in that sort of bland way. And I've no idea how God would deal with me stealing cookies before dinner time. But however He did it, it would match the very thing that I did wrong. If you see what I'm saying, and there's a kind, Anselm sees a beauty in this that God is. God is involved in every detail of even how he accomplishes our redemption. So that's that's a kind of a, a way to begin thinking about what I mean when I say that Anselm is concerned with um, with beauty, the beauty of theology, beauty in theology, beauty the way we should theologize. Um, another place where we see this is Anselm talks about the the question, which is not unique to him, does the number of the redeemed, that is to say, the number of people who are saved, does that equal the number of uh, angels who fell and became demons? And in his mind, mm-hmm. there seems to be a good reason to say that the number of the redeemed would make up the number of um, the number of the fallen angels, for the simple reason that God surely created everything perfectly the first time around, and after we messed it up, He brings back restoration. So that's one way of thinking. Um, there are other. That's
0: options. really interesting. Yeah. So. For him, fittingness, appropriateness equals beauty. I had no idea, or is is it identical to beauty, or is it just a similar? It's similar words.
2: Yeah, it's an aspect of of beauty. Okay, um, and it's yeah. It,
0: it seems that he's using it almost as it, like it, the examples you're giving. Beauty is almost like a symmetry, mm-hmm. where where it like fits together. I don't know how a good definition for it, but it's, mm. it's just fascinating to me.
2: Yeah, the question of of, of uh, beauty being this this um, symmetry, anyone who is, you have to be really committed, I'll tell you that much. Um, but if you read Hans Urs von Balthasar's Theological Aesthetics, which is actually like five or six volumes, um, one of those volumes does actually cover the medieval period. And so if you're really into the idea of beauty and theology mm-hmm. and what that means and how that's fleshed out in this symmetry, this... Fittingness, this appropriateness, and so forth. Uh, von Balthazar does a really great job of fleshing that out as a as a place to begin. But I, again, it comes with a caveat and a warning. It's it's not the sort of thing you read lightly before you go to bed.
1: I wanted to ask you um, maybe a more broad question about the medieval period. Um, you know, what do you think that Baptists today um, can glean from? medieval theology and maybe the way they interpreted the Bible, um, not that they all interpreted the Bible the, exactly the same way, but some of the principles they used or um, the way they thought about God, just anything from medieval theology that you think is particularly lacking in, uh, for Baptists that we um, should probably try to retrieve?
2: That's a good question. Um, there's a number of things, and and uh, you know, one is hermeneutics, which I'll, um, we can come back to that one. But one, another one is actually theological method. And uh, what I mean by that is this actually comes from Aquinas. I love to uh, to read this with people who have not read Aquinas closely or perhaps not even read him at all. If you take uh, Aquinas' Summa at Theologica and you you begin just in those first few pages, you'll eventually come across a statement that is People can—it's only one sentence—but it's perhaps the crux of the whole opening section, um, as he's been kind of building to this. And and what Aquinas essentially says is that God not only gives us the events that took place, and when he was writing the Bible, he not only gives us the events, but he also includes the meaning of those events for us. Now that's really significant. It may be the sort of thing one has to sit and chew on for a little while, but. God not only gives us the events, He gives us also the meaning of those events. And and the reason I think this is really seminal in Thomas Aquinas' uh, theology, and in fact our own theology today, is when we go to read the Bible, it's, it's not that we go to the Bible and decide what the meaning is. It's that we go to the Bible to ask the Lord to en- enlighten us, not only as to what His truth is, but in fact why He's giving us the events He is. Mm-hmm. And and so it's it's I think he's drawing Aquinas there is really essentially at base drawing on the uh, the Augustinian notion of Scripture interprets itself. But it's it's interesting because if you think about the modern, uh, the modern I don't know if I should pick on on just Baptists or evangelicals at large, but Bible oh, just community. go for it. Yeah, let's go for everybody. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll offend everybody equally at once. Um, <laughs> you know, so you go to the modern Bible study and somebody's beginning a book of the Bible. And uh, you know, let's just um you know choose one at random. So somebody is is going to teach Colossians, let's say. Well, in my experience, you sit through the first the first Bible study, and what do you get? You get somebody who's gonna show you a map. Where is Colossae, somebody who's gonna tell you about the background of Colossae and and you know first century. Uh, life in the Roman Empire and how this city is related to other cities and blah, blah, blah. And on and on it goes, this sort of background information as though this is like the the, the seminal thing that you need to get. And then ironically, the next week, they begin teaching through the text as though everything they said the previous week doesn't matter. And the the thing (laughs) I find amusing about this is like they intuitively know that the background information is not nearly as important as just getting in the scripture and reading it for itself. And understanding that God has not only given us details, He has given us meaning, and He has given us, um, you know, what we what we need, and and that's found within the text, not in some imagined history. Now, that's not to say that biblical backgrounds and history are unimportant and that sort of thing. They serve a certain purpose, but the purpose they serve with respect to interpretation is usually far less significant than what we imagine. And and Aquinas understood that, and the Medievals understood that. When you read a a medieval bible commentary which i'm sure many have uh, do this regularly but when you do that (laughs) um, you discover that they really are far more interested in well how does this text relate to these seven other texts that also say the same thing and they they start they, they they basically jump into the middle of what they see as a living conversation between old and new testament or between Old Testament book, different Old Testament books or different New Testament books. Um, so that, that's a that's a good theological method that I think we today can come back to is recognizing that God hasn't just given us a ser- bits of information that we go to and we collect and then we try and find out the meaning some in some mystical way or you know, by going to backgrounds. He's actually given us both the events and the meaning of those events in the same text. So in other words, God is completely sovereign in how he reveals himself to us. Does that make sense? Yeah, that yeah makes it sense. does.
1: Yeah. Um, you want to jump back into the hermeneutics piece of it?
2: Yeah. So the hermeneutics piece, which, of course, is related to theological method, um, you know, famously uh, it starts with origins. So this is a little bit pre-medieval. But, you know, you have the fourfold method of interpretation, which is to say uh, you, you read a text and you have the literal meaning, the moral meaning, the allegorical meaning, and what's called usually the anagogical meaning, which basically means the. Um, the future. I mean, the, the literal meaning uh, of a text does not mean literalistic. It's important to recognize that straight away, that, that medieval scholars and theologians and pastors did not read in a literalistic fashion, for the most part, what they read. They understood there are, are metaphors and similes, and there's imagery, and there's poetry, and you t- you treat all those things you know, in, in their own terms. So literal meaning simply recognizes these realities. Moral meaning, of course, was, why does this matter? Um, how does this change who I am? And then the allegorical, yes, I have to admit that on the one hand, there are theologians in the Middle Ages who went crazy, and in the ancient church who went a little nuts. Origen was probably chief among them. Um, but for the most part, you actually find a very strong line of interpretation where the allegorical actually means it would be better labeled Christological. In other words, Christ is, they see Christ at the center of of what they're doing, and so as they're interpreting the word of God, they're treating it based on its genre or based on its, you know, what it what it is. They're understanding that this should change who we are, but they're also understanding this should point us to Christ. So, in in a, in a way, our inheritance today as Baptists, um, and uh, and and it goes obviously beyond Baptists, but our inheritance of how we actually read the Bible. Is very much steeped and delivered to us through this uh, through this medieval um, practice, if you will.
0: Hmm. So I I imagine I, I know I see a lot of people on the internet at least that evangelicals who are becoming far more interested in medieval theology just in general. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a growing interest among uh, I guess you know my age and younger and maybe a little bit older. Where should they go to really get the resources to begin engaging and understanding these things? So I guess there's, that's a twofold question. Number one, are are there good introductory books? And then number two, if there are people out there who want to begin really studying these things, maybe at an academic level, are there evangelical institutions they can be a part of to learn this? Or are, do they have to go to other types of institutions, whether that's overseas or somewhere else?
2: Yeah. So the um, there are some good resources. Um, uh, so uh, Levy, I'm trying to think, is it Christopher Levy, um, has written a, a book called uh, Introducing uh, Medieval Biblical Interpretation, or an Introduction to Medieval um, Biblical Interpretation. And it, that's a really great resource um he takes his time he goes uh and, and he walks through he doesn't he doesn't assume too much at least i don't think he does um but he walks people through here's here is how the bible was interpreted interpreted in the, in the medieval period and it's very helpfully um done another good introduction is um another uh, by and i'm gonna um uh, i have no idea how to pronounce his last name is van um is that a calvin it's n i think it's n i e u um, oh i'm gonna butcher it I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't have it in front of me i should but I don't. we'll figure it out and put it in the notes there you go put it in the notes somewhere but uh that's again that's another great introduction in terms of just dealing with individuals like um levy's book is is going to talk a lot about sort of big picture ideas um And Van Nieuwenhoven is going to uh, is going to talk more about uh, individuals and periods and so forth. and And so those two books together are actually an excellent introduction to to medieval theology and what's going on in medieval theology. So I'd suggest starting there. Um, In terms of where to go to study medieval theology, you 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 almost have to go outside of evangelical institutions. it's it's just very difficult to find anywhere that does it i mean i just i i i teach a phd seminar every other year and uh on medieval theology it's 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 got to be one of the very few if not the only one in evangelical um yeah. uh seminaries and divinity schools it's it's pretty rare in fact uh, it's interesting I, I recently just uh taught that seminar a couple of weeks ago and and i began by asking the question what do you know or what did you get what did you what were you taught in your mdiv and i was just amazed to find out how little people are actually taught as part of just church history forget historical theology or other things um so there's really not a lot there so so secular universities as we might call them um are usually the best place to go which means you aren't necessarily going to find like-minded evangelicals um but you will find men and women who are Fantastic and marvelous, and mm. you know, well-read and very thoughtful and tremendously helpful. Um, I did my degree at St. Andrews, still a good place to go. Um, you know, Fordham University uh, is as uh, a Catholic university, but there are some really top-rate scholars there. Uh, Notre Dame, of course. So I mean, some of these big places, but um, yeah. and you know, the University of Toronto, where I was uh, for my undergraduate. I mean, there's some really good-quality programs that are really going to help you. Um, equip you to to figure these things out. But yes, for the most part, it's really hard to find anywhere to go within the evangelical world to study this.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I I think you mentioned seminary mm-hmm. training on this. I think back I had two church history seminars mm-hmm. or I guess not seminars, courses that I had to take. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure medieval theology made up about like one week <laughs> of church history one, <laughs> yes. you know, it's like on at the end. Yeah, So I, I think you're absolutely right that there does seem to be a vacuum Mm -hmm. uh, for this area, but I think there's really is a hunger for people who are interested in it. So maybe from your perspective, if, if we want to recover the wisdom that is in the medieval period what can we practically do? It, so maybe on a church level, what can a church do to help expose people to the riches that are here in this medieval period? And maybe more on our own institutions. How do we recover a care for the medieval
2: period? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a good and challenging question. Um, you know, one of the things that I have discovered over the years is... At least on the institutional side, if we look at that before we turn to the church side of things, on the institutional side, academically speaking, um, theres it seems as though within evangelical institutions, there is a kind of a pre-programmed bias against anything medieval. And I understand why. The reason is is that we value the Reformation so highly. And I think the Reformation was a wonderful period with lots of great characters and, and some tremendous theology. Absolutely. I think the irony of that is that the Reformers did theology on the shoulders of their medieval forebears. And, and then we've come along and said, well, let's just pay attention to the, to the reformers and not to the medieval theologians. And what that's done is is created this vacuum. But it's also created, like I say, a kind of pre-programmed notion that, well, why would I, as a student, why would I take medieval history or medieval theology or something like that? So we're actually having to, to some degree, it's, there needs, we need to overcome a kind of bias that exists that assumes that there was the ancient church. Then a thousand years of complete quiet in which God never spoke to anyone, their loom in their hearts or anything of this nature. Um, and, um, and then we arrive at the reformation and thank you, Calvin. Thank you, Luther. Thank you, Melanchthon. And, um, you know, and then the enlightenment ruined it all. And now we're still trying to recover. So that's sort of the, the basic <laughs> format. And, um, we need to get past that and recognize, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, I get asked the question from time to time, you know, why should we even bother studying theology? uh the medieval, theolo- medieval theology and and when i think about that i actually think it's a little bit like asking why should you care about your christian grandparents now it's not to say people's grandparents lived in the middle ages um but it's to say your know, grandparents are you know depending on your age they're either old or they're, they're dead and but you still care about them if you you know they still are part of your history they're part of your identity um and so to you know by extension why do we care about medieval theology well because they're part of our family um, you know these are theologians, these are pastors who are writing uh for the church because the Holy Spirit is at work in them and you know for anyone who 's had this experience you know in church let 's bring this to the church side of things if you know in a church, the one thing that is really, really rich and rewarding is when you find that old saint um, and you sit down with them and and they begin to just talk to you about whatever you realize you're in the presence of somebody who's spent a good deal of their life in the presence of God, and it really does shape you and change you and challenge you. Well, that's exactly what medieval theology does. And I think that those who are studying in seminaries and seeking to become pastors or professors or, um, you know, in in some form of ministry um, ought ought to take time to think, well, have I been ignoring the family? Have I been ignoring those who have have heard from the Lord because they have they have know they've known Scripture better than I do? Like I said, Anselm had all 150 Psalms word for word memorized within a few years of, of joining a monastery, and that was very common. To say nothing of the Gospels and the the Pentateuch and uh, Pauline epistles that they just knew literally word for word, um, and that changes their ability. It doesn't mean that they're going to everything they say is going to be right, but what it does mean is that they're 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 worthy of giving space and time to and listening to. So for those who are still in the place of of preparing for ministry in some form or fashion, I would encourage them to uh, uh, to take the time to read medieval theology, to sit at the feet of those who've who've gone before them, and then to to take the treasures that they they find there and um, help people see, help others in the church see. Church history is more than, is, it's deeper and richer than, than we might imagine. To give one little uh, very concrete illustration of this, some years ago, um, maybe eight or nine years ago, I was teaching, I was invited by the pastor of the church I attended to teach a Wednesday night study on, on medieval church history. Actually, I think we started with the Reformation and then we went back to the medieval, medieval, uh, medieval period. But, anyways, doing church history on Wednesday night. And as I was, I'd been teaching for a while. And as one, one Wednesday I got there and I was walking down the hall and this lady I, I didn't know um, was walking with me and, and she said, oh, you don't know me. I've been sitting in this class for a while and I, I just want to thank you. And, and, and by the way, I want to tell you a funny story. And I said, what's that? And she said, well, I was I was telling my I was on the phone with my mother and I was telling her that I was attending this class at church on Wednesday nights on church history. And she said there was a long pause. And finally, my mother said, but but dear, you belong to a church that was only started 20 years ago. What history is there?'" <laughs> And she said, it dawned on me, my mother's view, and her mother was a believer, um, my mother's view of church history didn't extend past the local congregation like the one she attended. She had mm-hmm. absolutely zero knowledge that anything mattered beyond that. And and anyway, it's just sort of illustrated for me the fact that there are probably more Christians than we recognize who have really no good concept of just the the richness of the tradition that God has given us in the church.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, I I think that was a fantastic way to close up shop for us. Do you think so, Brandon?
1: Yeah, it's a great closing <laughs> word.
0: Um, I do want to mention, for those who've listened this far, which I imagine is 99% of you, because this has been straight gold, um, it, I think I need to give credit to Dr. Hogg for, for just the inception of the podcast. Because I, I think back to Brandon and me, we're sitting in uh, Panera outside, this is before COVID, so we didn't have masks on. And we're sitting there with Dr. Hogg, just pitching this idea of a podcast. And he helped clarify and shape for us some of the uh, goals and some of our, I guess, what we were going to talk about. So I want to give you credit for that. So thank you. For those who are listening who like it, yeah, thank you. Uh, Dr. Hogg gets credit. If you don't like it, then just blame us. Don't blame him. <laughs> <laughs> by,
2: by, by the way, I'm still waiting for all the royalties that should come from this. There, there's nothing been arriving <laughs> Don't
1: worry.
0: <laughs> Royalties. Well, I guess you owe me at least five lunches because <laughs> I'm in the negative. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's
1: good. Well,
2: thanks, guys. Awesome. I really well, appreciate
0: uh, yeah, it. Yeah, Doctor Hawk, do you have a website or anything at all where people could connect with you and follow the stuff that you're doing, or are you some Some of our guests are total online hermits, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people like to follow our guests. So, do you have anything at all?
2: You know what? I, I don't. Um, I'm, I'm thoroughly medieval um, in that regard. Um, <laughs> but, you know, maybe I should start something. You, you, you planted a seed in my head. So if I do, I'll let you guys know and then you can pass the word along.
0: Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us. I think this has been great. Uh, and everybody who's been listening, I, I encourage you to, I mean, I guess you can, you can get the Kindle version of Dr. Hawk's book for $14. That's that's not bad. That's jump change. So uh, skip 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 your uh, lunch out uh, for work and grab a copy of that because I think uh, he is really, really, really helpful in a lot of these areas. So thank you, Dr. Hawk, for talking to us. And for everybody who's been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon.